Uh, been really excited about uh, this class for a while. Been looking forward forward to it. And um, you know, as we you saw in the video announcements um, promoting the class, you know, our hope in these four weeks is to to not only teach but again to have a discussion that's going to equip us in dealing with really what are some very urgent issues uh, facing our culture. Um, as we discussed, this book, uh, Love Thy Body, is going to be kind of our jumping off point. Um, but the issues of life and death, uh, sexuality, and now gender and identity issues, these are the, the main issues. These are the hot-button issues of our time. And um, so we need to have a perspective. We need to know what, how to respond to this. And we, as Christians, we worship the God of all truth. And we believe that he's the revealer of all truth. And that's kind of the posture that we have towards this. As we heard from Pastor Carol on Sunday, what you believe matters. Uh, and that's why we want to spend time with you guys equipping you uh, and talking about these type of issues. Because you are the, the people that are out in the front lines dealing with these issues. Um, and that's really kind of our hope is that as you gauge in these critical worldview discussions, our, our hope is really just kind of coming out of Ephesians 4, which is we want to equip you guys to do the work of ministry, right? It's impossible for the, the staff of, even if you combine all the churches together, to, to really make a dent in what's happening out there. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about equipping the saints until we reach the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here, listen to verse 14, it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So that's just a snapshot of what we want to equip you guys to engage. And this class is meant to be equal parts uh, knowledge and information as well as uh, application. And uh, again, Love Thy Body is, is the framework. You don't need to ha have have the book. I highly recommend it, though. I really think that this book is, is an outstanding treatment of these issues that is not just, again, about um, winning arguments, which we're going to talk about, but it, it has a very um, pastoral approach, if I could say that. Um, so she, she relates these uh, to these issues uh, in terms of worldview and what it means to be a human being. And I'm also going to quote a lot from her previous book from about, um, gosh, almost 15 years ago called Total Truth. And that gives a much deeper and a broader perspective uh, on treatment on, on just the issue specifically of worldview. So if you don't have Total Truth and Love Thy Body, please get those for, uh, for it'll be helpful for the class, but get those for your own library and for your own uh, edification. So the schedule, just to give you a quick overview is obviously tonight is just an introduction in worldview basics. Week two is going to be uh, taught by Mike Sassy, and that's going to cover the issues of life and death where we're going to talk in detail about uh, worldview and how it relates to the issues uh, such as abortion, uh, infanticide, and euthanasia. And week three will be um, the topic of sex in the age of the hookup culture. That's going to be taught by Pastor Carol in a week four, April 24th. I'll be back up talking about 
uh, the issues of homosexuality and gender identity and how worldview uh, undergirds all of that. So that's the schedule. Um, and again, the, the main purpose of this class as well as the book is to make the case that Christianity sustains the dignity of the human body and it actually accords with science and biology. And we need to have strong, life-affirming arguments to engage with family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, whoever it may be, whoever we are coming across. And we need to have a, a humility, but we also need to have a confidence in doing that. And I think we'd all agree that the secular worldview and, and their take on these issues is really becoming dominant, and, and it's happening very quickly out there. So... Um, but more than, than just persuasive arguments, we need to see people who are struggling or currently or will be struggling with these issues in the future as human beings made in the image of God, okay? And because of that, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they're into or practicing, they have incredible dignity and worth, and that must be an overarching principle throughout all of this, okay? And the tone I want to set in, in tonight and throughout this class is really one of, of hope and anticipation. Um, it, it's not about being afraid, right? If you guys remember the, the, the conference with Jay Warner Wallace, uh, he had a great uh, point. I don't know if you remember it, but he says as, as Christians and the, the worldview and the evidence that we have, we're, we're the big dog in the argument, right? We, we don't need to be afraid, yapping around, making noise. We, we have the evidence and the arguments, and that's what this is about is, is helping you uh, craft those arguments. Um, Sam Williams is a Christian psychologist. Piercy refers to him in, in Love Thy Body, and he says that the posture that we need to adapt right now and adopt right now in this current phase that we're in is more rescue mission rather than culture war, okay? And so, and I think that the culture war is a term that is very charged uh, that's out there, but we need as believers to see that we, we are on a rescue mission and we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this class is really under the umbrella of what we believe is the mission of, of New Life Church, but also the mission of every believer, and that's to make disciples of Jesus Christ who will then go out and multiply and make disciples of Jesus Christ and on and on. Uh, towards the end of the, of the book, Love Thy Body, Piercy has a great way of framing up the reason why we're engaging in these complex moral issues. And that's to keep a clear focus on the main goal. She makes the point that uh, the, the main reason to address these moral issues it, they, is that they've become a stumbling block for people to even hear the gospel. Right? They, they can't even hear the truth of Jesus Christ because of these issues. And our, our purpose is not to persuade people to change their behavior, right? but to tear down barriers uh, for people becoming a Christian. Uh, and, and so essentially what we're practicing is almost pre-apologetics, really. We're, we're preparing the way for them to even consider the truth. Uh, and not always, but very often we've gotten things out of order. Uh, you know, once a person is convinced that Christianity is true, then they can begin to ask the questions of, okay, if Christianity is true, what does that mean for my sexuality? 
or for my finances or my relationships or any other area of their life. And as believers, we, we often, and sometimes it's unfair, I know, but often we're known for what we're against rather than what we're for or who we're for, right? And, and yes, we're misquoted. We're often taken out of context. But one of the things that we need to remember is that the gospel is good news for every area of life, right? It's not just about punching your ticket and going to heaven, right? It's not just about your salvation. And there is a big difference between being saved and living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the gospel of the kingdom affects every area of society, every area of culture. So it's very big picture, but it's also incredibly intimate and personal. And the gospel of the kingdom should have an effect in every area of our life. I went to a conference in February, and Nancy Piercy was actually one of the speakers there. It was outstanding. And, and I shared this in the video, but she made a startling comment where she said that when we're discussing issues of faith, the first question that people ask is not, is Christianity true? But rather, why are Christians so hateful? Why are, why are you all such bigots? That's, that's where people are. That's the questions that they're asking. And the collision between religious liberty and sexual liberty is happening right now in front of our eyes. Uh, and there's a lot of indoctrination, guys. There's a, there's a lot of rhetoric these days uh, that says that the Bible and Christian ethics and morality are hurtful and that our beliefs are narrow-minded and damaging. In the 2013 Windsor decision, this is the case where the Supreme Court struck down the uh, Defense of Marriage Act, uh, in which, the, in the majority opinion, there it was written where um, the the justices accused DOMA supporters, right, supporters of traditional marriage, of being motivated by animus, and animus is just a legal term that means just hostility, um, hatred, or anim animosity. And it claimed that the purpose of people who supported traditional marriage was to disparage, to humiliate, and to harm people in same-sex unions and to brand them as unworthy. And, and then later, just three years later, uh, an official report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in which the chairman, Martin Castro, wrote, quote, the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any other form of intolerance. Now, this is where many of us struggle as believers, right? Because who, who wants to be seen that way? Right? No, no one wants to be seen that way, right? So we really struggle with uh, being labeled that way. But one of the things, that, and we've talked about it in, in other classes, we talk about it from the pulpit, is one of the things that we need to recover is that truth and love are not in opposition. And I, I think that, that that is a lie that many of us have gotten to believe because we are in a very feelings-based environment right now. It's, it's, it's not, they're not in opposition. It's actually very loving to tell someone the truth. Now, you can be rude about it and all of that. Your, your voice and your tone, of course, matters. But it's not, it's not 
wrong to tell the truth. It's actually very loving, right? And so, so think, think through that. Let that, let that kind of sink in and, and, and marinate as we, as we go through that. And so we're, we're seeing the, the influence of Christianity diminish in the culture. And one of the things Piercy talks about is that we need to be able to understand people's arguments uh, from the inside rather than critiquing from afar, right? That, that's why these kind of discussions on social media, they're really, they're really not that helpful. I don't know. If, have you guys noticed that? Have you, have you seen those kind of hot button type of issues? If you've ever gotten in one of those conversations or one of those threads, the, the first minute you hit, the first time you hit submit on your comment, you're probably wishing, why did I ever do that? Right? And you're getting sucked in. So um, listen, listen to what Nancy Piercy says in, in related to that. She says, it's rarely effective to criticize someone else's view from within your own perspective. That means they disagree, that just means that they disagree with you. It's much more persuasive when you step inside the other person's perspective and critique it from within, showing how it fails on its own terms. To do that, Christians have to become familiar with secular worldviews and learn to uncover their dehumanizing and destructive implications. Only then will the other person be open to considering Christianity as a credible alternative. And so when we, we also, you can see the sense there that there's a relational aspect. And when we look at the challenges that way, it moves from not just being a philosophy or arguments, but it, it becomes incarnational, right? It, it's flesh and blood. This means that it's kingdom living that is very relational, right? This means sacrificing your time and going to coffee with someone that you know disagrees with you right, and not just hanging around Christians, okay? So it's very relational, and that's why one of the things that we, we need to do is keep love at the center of our motivation, right? If we're out just to win an argument instead of winning the person, we're missing the point. We're missing the point of all this, and we want to be a church that is a safe place for believers, right, both believers as well as unbelievers who are dealing with these kind of issues, Right? Listen, let's not pretend that people in our church are not dealing with these issues, right? And that's one of the main reasons why, another reason why we're having this conversation is that people need to know that there is a safe place to talk about these issues. And listen to this quote. Now, this quote is from four years ago from Russell Moore. This is, this is an outstanding quote. He says, uh, it's, it's from an article he wrote called The Sexual Revolution's Coming Refugee Crisis. This is four years ago. He says, quote, That's why I say the church should prepare for the sexual revolution's refugees. We should understand why the culture around us is exuberant. They believe this will make them happy, that their alienation has been the result of cultural marginalization or Puritan repression. But he says the sexual revolution cannot keep its promises. Many people are going to be disappointed, and even before they can admit it to others or to themselves, they're going to ask, is this all there is? Okay? So in a sense, we are preparing for what he calls people who are broken, disillusioned, and disappointed from, from the, the, the sexual revolution, right? From the, from the issues that we're going to talk about. And as believers... We have the gospel. 
a life-affirming, life-giving message. Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so that's the introduction. And I want to set the the stage for this class by sharing a scripture that's very foundational to everything that we're going to be discussing. It's Romans 12.2, and it says... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, now, one of the things that we need to remember, think back to when you first became a believer and first became a disciple, part of being a, part of being a, a new creation is, is the renewal of our minds. Right. And I think that we need to understand and have grace. I know it did for me is that it, it's a process that takes time. Right. So Romans 12, two. So do not be conformed or, or, or molded. Right. Don't be molded to this world or, or the, the original word there is can also be translated as to this age, to this this epic, this era that we're in. And be transformed or metamorphed, right? Transformed by the renovating of your mind. Now, notice the the, the next word here. Testing is is the next concept. That's the next word, and that is the idea of of an examination, right? Or, or or a trial. And it's the transformation and the renewal when you go through that that prepares you for the actual testing, right? Or or the examination. Right. If you follow the logic there, then it's that that's the process by which we are discerning God's perfect will. And I think we could all agree that right now the reality is there's quite a lot of testing that's happening right now in our culture. And it's happening in real time And the speed with which this is happening is breathtaking. Uh, it's caught many of us off guard with how to respond. I mean, really, there's, there's a strong sense of being overwhelmed right now. I mean, I was talking to Phil earlier, literally every single day there is some kind of new report, some kind of article about just the kind of craziness that's going on out there with these issues. Some of them are are not that meaningful, but are just kind of like, really, is that what they're doing? Like, for example, I read a report this week, uh, uh, a news article that says that in in the Buffalo airport and then and then a couple weeks ago in the San Antonio airport, that they have had a um, uh, lawmakers have revolted against allowing a Chick-fil-A into the concourse of their airport. And the reason is, is that Chick-fil-A, when they looked at their tax returns, uh, had found out that Chick-fil-A gave away $1.8 million in charitable donations uh, to, to some organizations that have come under scrutiny uh, in terms of their stance on LGBTQ issues, um, and those organizations are the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, um, the Salvation Army, and so, so that's that's something you're like, okay, really, that's going on. Um, so there's a movie that just came out this past week called Unplanned, and so uh, I haven't seen it yet, but it's getting getting really great reviews. And so what happened was is Twitter deactivated the Unplanned movie account. And said that you violated some rules, um, and so they, they they basically un un just deleted their account, and of course there was an uproar and 
and then then they turned it back on and and people were following it and then they were losing followers and all that and and so there there's there's challenges there of just even getting a, a, a viewpoint out there now that backfired on them because people who 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 were catching on to what was going on their their numbers have exploded and it did really well. I think it was number six at the box office so so this this whole concept of because you have a certain viewpoint, we're going to deplatform you. We're not going to let you speak. So that's happening. But but a more serious case is actually closer to home. I read an article this week, and it's in it's in national newspapers as well. Uh, a University of Louisville professor um, named uh, Dr. Alan Josephson, who who was actually the chief of U of L Medical School's division of child and adolescent psychiatry and psychology for nearly 15 years. Uh, found out that he was, uh, in a, because of a lawsuit that he, he uh, filed, that he was demoted soon after speaking in late 2017 at an event uh, for the Heritage Foundation, which is, is a nonprofit, is a conservative nonprofit. Um, and during that event, right, during that conference, if you will, he discussed his professional opinions on the treatment of children with gender dysphoria. And, and these are the same views that he apparently has shared in, uh, expressed as an expert witness in various legal cases. Specifically, his lawsuit says that he made the following comments. He noted that the notion that gender identity should trump chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, um, genitalia, secondary sex characteristics when classifying individuals is counter to medical science. Second, he noted that transgender ide- ideology neglects the child's need for developing coping and problem-solving skills necessary to meet developmental challenges. And third, he indicated parents should emphatically listen to their kids and then use their collective wisdom in guiding their child to align with his or her biological sex. Okay. Several other of U L's faculty and staff members um, objected to his views, and they demanded that L take disciplinary action. Now, he, he claims that they, the university gave in to this pressure, demoted him, took him down to a junior level, and then this past February that L did not re, uh, renew his contract, essentially firing him. And um, he says that uh, they took all these retaliatory actions with an eye to ensuring uh, that neither himself nor anyone else dares to express viewpoints that they find objectionable on medical and psychiatric issues. Okay, this is happening right here in our hometown, right? And um, Chris Hartsman, he's the executive director of the, of the Fairness Campaign uh, here in Louisville, said, Dr. Josephson's perspective on this issue is outdated and at best, at best and discriminatory and prejudiced at worst. He said, the, quote, the vast majority of folks who work with transgender adults and youth concur that supporting someone's decision to transition as early as they are sure about their desire to do so is what can save their lives. So listen, I don't know if, I don't know Dr. Josephson. I don't know that if he's a Christian, and I'm not, and I'm not even saying that he's punished for his faith, okay? Uh, but what I do, what we can learn from this is that he was punished for not submitting to the current secular orthodoxy on gender identity. So, now going forward, uh, I, I believe that this is more of what persecution is going to look like in America. 
<laughs> Listen, we, we are not most likely going to have to face the, the physical horrors and the violence that brothers and sisters in um, Nigeria are facing or, or North Korea or Iran, just to name a few. So we won't have to pay with our lives, but many of us may have to pay with our livelihoods, jobs, reputation, influence. So that's the challenge and the opportunity before us. Now, we believe that the Bible speaks to uh, all of reality, including these particular issues, and that's why it's very important to spend time on this issue of worldview. And before we, take a, before we discuss the basics of worldview, I want to take a, a couple moments and just set a bigger picture, a bigger framework. So what we're doing here related to worldview is not just a, a tool, uh, it's not a, a strategy uh, to, to score points uh, out in the culture, right? Or it's not he- we're not here to make you a better political activist, right? I, I think that we're hopefully, hopefully we understand by now that politics is, is way downstream from culture. And, and, and culture is downstream from your worldview, right? From your foundational uh, first principles that you believe. And, and I want to make the case tonight and, and in this class that building a biblical worldview is actually an act of worship, right? <clears throat> Second Corinthians 10.5 says it's that we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, it, it, it's also what we're doing here in, in building a Christian biblical worldview. It's also one of the ways that we actually fulfill the great commandment. Luke 10.27 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Nancy Piercy says, as with every aspect of our sanctification, the renewal of the mind may be painful and difficult. It requires hard work and discipline inspired by a sacrificial love of Christ and a burning desire to build up his body, the church. Developing a Christian worldview means submitting our entire self to God in an act of devotion and service to him, right? So build, what we're doing is not just gaining information, right? If we frame it up right, it's an act of worship, right? We're told to love God with our minds. Okay, so let's talk about worldview, worldview basics. So Pastor Carroll on Sunday gave the, the definition that worldview is a particular philosophy of life or perception of the world, right? And literally, it's literally how we view the world. So it's the idea that there is a, a lens or a filter through which we understand and interpret the world around us. So um, this is really important what I'm about to say. Every system of thought, every worldview must account for three key aspects of reality. The first is creation. Everything must, everything has an origin. Where did we come from, right? How, how was this aspect of the world created? What was its original nature or purpose? So the first question that any system of thought or any worldview has to answer is origins. Where, where did everything come from? Where did I come from? What's the purpose? The second key aspect of reality is, is the fall, right? In other words, what is the source of suffering and evil, right? How, how is what we're seeing out in the culture, uh, how has it been twisted and distorted by 
the fall? How has it been corrupted by sin and false worldviews? And the third part of this, this grid, this interpretive grid, is redemption. How do we, how does God work through us to bring this aspect of the world or creation under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Right? How do we be an agent that God uses to restore it to its original created purpose? So this, this interpretive grid, this, this three-part grid, is a very important tool that, that you need to have in your toolkit. Right, And um, so having that in mind, we, we want to talk now uh, and move into some of the different, different um, areas, different historical uh, schools of thought that have gotten us to where we are. But first is to understand the, the analogy of, of the, the top button, right? <clears throat> so if I button this top button, you can see that everything would line up. But if I start down here, it's going to be jacked up. So... Uh, as we, we understand that, that starting first things first and getting that in order I- is critical in terms of first principles. So as we are engaging conflicting worldviews, one of the keys to remember is that nobody is unbiased. Everybody comes to the table with preconceived ideas and theories uh, about, about life, uh, about, about reality. So no system of thought is unbiased or completely objective. We all reason and we all interpret and we all make decisions uh, through our worldview, right? Through that lens that we interpret the world. And everything traces back ultimately to first principles, right? Every system of thought has a definitive starting point, something that can be taken as self-existent, right? It's the ultimate reality and source of everything that exists. And Piercy brings out a great point that these first principles, um, in a sense, they act as the divine, right? Uh, it's, it's what they appeal, everything that makes their appeal to, right? And it's, in a sense, it's, it's, it has a religious kind of aspect to it, right? It, it's, it's how they order everything. It's how they deal with reality. It's, it's how they um, understand what's true and what's false. So if it doesn't begin with God, it's going to begin with some dimension or aspect of creation, whether it's material, biological, whether it's data, whether it's empirical. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. And that's, that's essentially what it is. So Romans 1 speaks to that, starting in verse 19. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Right? Another important thing to keep in your mind as you're, as you're looking at these other worldviews, world it doesn't start with God. Then theologically, it's idolatry. Okay? So... Um, moving into this, this um, understanding of truth. So one of the things that PRC talks about 
is this concept of a two-story division of truth that, we, that we've inherited, really. And actually, the first person that, that explained it to her was Francis Schaeffer. So many of you will know him as mid-last century uh, as an apologist. He's the founder of the Labrie uh, culture and community. And it, it was actually there that Nancy Piercy, as a, as a seeker, uh, learned and, and was discipled, and, and she's actually expanded that in her books. But the idea of the, the two-story division, the upstairs-downstairs of truth, um, <coughs> comes originally from, from Francis Schaeffer. And essentially what it is is on the bottom, the, 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 the downstairs aspect of truth is science. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll, we're going to unpack some of the history of how we got there, but science, in other words, it's, it's public, it's objective, it's valid for everyone. And then on the upstairs is theology or morality, and that's private, that's subjective, that's relativistic. <clears throat> and that's kind of the, the we're going to work through the, here the next few minutes, looking at how this, this dualistic view of truth um, how we've inherited it, and how it applies to the issues that we're going to talk about. So I don't have time to go through, <coughs> excuse me, all of the isms, but there are a lot of isms that we have, um, <laughs> that we have a history, that we've inherited, that we deal with today. I'm going to touch on three, but again, I, I encourage you to to read through Nancy Piercy's uh, her her books, um, again, love that body's outstanding on this. <clears throat> but really, she does an even better job of, of dealing with this in total truth. So the first ism that we want to talk about is Platonism. <clears throat> Platonism. This goes back to ancient Greek and classical thought. Platonism had a stark division between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, treating the physical as less valuable than the spiritual realm, and, and sometimes almost even defining it as evil. <clears throat> Excuse me. Plato taught that everything in reality is composed of two primary elements, matter and form, um, <clears throat> and, and raw material ordered by rational ideas. So, so for example, think of a, <clears throat> a beautiful um, cathedral that's, you know, huge. It's, I've been to one in Germany, in Cologne. It's amazing. But think of a beautiful cathedral. It, it consists of multiple different materials, stone, um, wood, metal, stained glass. It has multiple soaring steeples. It's just breathtaking architecture. And, and, and it's, all this starts as an idea or a blueprint in the architect's mind, Right? But the materials themselves, they're, they're regarded as raw, they're, they're disordered and chaotic. So over and above this material are the forms, right, the, the ideas or the concepts. So according to Plato, the realm of pure form, right, the ideas and the concept was actually, believe it or not, considered more real than the material world. Now, that sounds really weird to us, but that was kind of the, the thinking back then. <clears throat> so... Again, thinking about our three-part grid, in terms of origins, Plato regarded material as, as pre-existing from all eternity. And, 
and that that the role of of God or or, or the deity was merely to impose uh, order or form on those on those materials, right? But here's the thing: the the matter has properties which the deity really couldn't completely totally control, right? So Platonic dualism, and I think there's a, a chart on your on your handout. Platonic dualism can be represented as <clears throat> in the downstairs story, right? The story that really um, <clears throat> that he he broke it out this way: matter is is eternal, formless, and his division has form or eternal reason on the top. So from a biblical perspective, one of the main problems with Platonic dualism was it I, that it identified physical creation as, as a source of chaos, as a source of evil. All right, but that's, that's not biblical, right? We know that Genesis 1.31 says, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So, okay, so that, that was just an example of how you apply and use the grid, the three-part grid, creation, fall, and redemption to these other worldviews. Okay, the next ism that we're going to talk about is Gnosticism. And so one of the earliest forces for a dualistic worldview that the church was battling was Gnosticism. And um, again, this was very big in the first couple centuries of the early church. And Gnosticism takes its name from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So gnosis, uh, gnosis refers to knowledge. Some would call it a special, a special knowledge that's... Uh, based on personal experience or perception. In a a religious context, it's uh, gnosis is this mystical knowledge that you get based on your participation with the divine. In most Gnostic systems, the sufficient cause for salvation, right, how you get saved is acquiring this special knowledge of the divine, right? It's, It's an inward knowing. So it's very, very subjective. And these systems believe that the material world is created uh, or by the, the works of a lower God. They call it a demiurge, uh, trapping the divine spark within the human body. And so working through their, their, their theology or their thinking, if you want to, want to call it that, the divine spark could be liberated by this gnosis, by this special knowledge that you can get through experience, right? It's very experiential. So some of the core teachings, I, I put them on your handout, are, are these. All matter is evil, <clears throat> number one, and the non-material spirit realm is good. That's, so that's really where you want to be. So being in, on earth and in a body, that's bad. That's evil. <clears throat> number two, there's an unknowable deity or God who gave rise to many lesser spirit beings called eons. And number three, the creator of the material universe is not the supreme God, but an inferior God, again, the demiurge. Number four, Gnosticism doesn't deal with sin, right? So the problem isn't sin, it's ignorance. So Gnosticism gives you um, the knowledge in, to achieve salvation. One escapes this world, going to, this, going to the spirit realm by gaining this special knowledge. Okay, so your, prob- your wheels are probably tur- turning in your head right now. The three-part grid is probably kicking in. <clears throat> and so one of the ways that we need to be careful as Christians is the way that we talk about death. And sometimes it can actually hint at Gnosticism. <clears throat> I'll Fly Away is a popular hymn 
that was written in 1929 by Albert Brumley. And, and some claim that it's the most recorded gospel song <clears throat> of all time. And, and it's sung by many different Christians, many different denominations, many different backgrounds. But listen to the lyrics. It says, <clears throat> Some glad morning when his life is over, I'll fly away. To a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. Uh, I'll fly away, O glory, when I die. Hallelujah, by and by. Verse 2, when the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. Just a few more dreary, weary days, and then I'll fly away to a land where joy shall never end. Now, do you, do you detect anything in there that we need to be careful of? <clears throat> We've got to be careful with, with language like that because in, in one sense... What we're saying is the real person is not there anymore, right? In, this, in a sense, that's true, right, our spirit. But if we're not careful, we can communicate a dualistic, sacred-secular worldview related to the spirit and body, right? The third part of the Christian worldview, a grid, addresses redemption in this way and that we're ultimately going to receive a resurrected body like Jesus. We're not going to be in a disembodied spiritual state forever. That's that's temporary. That's not, where, that's not our ultimate destination. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 starts off, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And the reference there, I think, is to the glorified body of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Right? That, that's our destination. That's where we're going to go. Does that make sense? Okay. So we've talked about um, Platonism. We've talked about Gnosticism and the third ism that I have time to cover. And again, there's so many uh, that you can look, that you can research. The, the, the third one is Darwinism. So we're going to fast forward to the mid-late 19th century and Charles Darwin. And uh, many of you, we've been immersed in this, so we're, we're all pretty familiar with um, his theory of biological evolution. Um, and, and, and he built on the work of others, stating that all species of organisms arise and develop through the natural selection of small inherited variations that increase the individual's ability to compete, survive, and reproduce. Now, Darwinism rests on two other foundational views. The first is naturalism. Okay? Now, naturalism is a system of thought holding that all phenomena, all of reality can be explained in terms of natural causes and laws. In other words, the supernatural is ruled out. <clears throat> the second thing that Darwinism rests on is materialism, and that's the view that the only thing that exists is matter. Right? If anything else exists, such as mental events, thinking, or whatever, it's reducible down to the cellular, to the matter. To, to matter. And according to Piercy, she says, quote, almost immediately it was welcomed by a group of thinkers who began to work out its implications far beyond science. They realized that Darwinism implies a broader philosophy of naturalism. Uh, thus, they began applying a naturalistic worldview across the board in philosophy, psychology, the law, education, and the arts. And in current times, the writer and the scientist Daniel Dennett calls Darwinism, quote, 
a universal acid that eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview. He goes on to say, if parents persist in challenging Darwinism, he says, we will describe your teachings as the spreading of falsehoods and will attempt to demonstrate this at our earliest opportunity. Now, in the PBS series Evolution, Dennett said that Darwin's great accomplishment was to reduce the design of the universe to a product of, quote, purposeless, meaningless matter in motion. And unfortunately, this idea of a universal acid is fairly accurate in terms of the impact on our culture. All right, and it's led us to the current state of affairs that we're in today, or it's one of the factors. <clears throat> Uh, again, the concept of truth has div been divided. On the, on the downstairs, uh, we have science. Again, it's public, it's objective, it's valid for everyone. On the upstairs is theology, or it's, it's morality. It, it's private, it's subjective, it's relativistic. Piercy has a, a, a powerful <clears throat> place in her book, Love That Body, in the, in the front of the book where she she says that many people who identify as religious or Christian are being co-opted by the secular worldview without even knowing it. And, and recent numbers that she quotes in Love Their Body, they're, they're not encouraging. And I'll give you some of them. Pornography, about two-thirds of Christian men watch pornography at least monthly. That's the same rate as men who, claim, who, do, who, do, who don't claim Christ. Uh, cohabitation, uh, a Gallup poll found that almost half 49% of teens with religious backgrounds support living together before marriage. Uh, homosexuality and transgenderism. This is 2014. A Pew Research study found that 51% of evangelical millennials said that same-sex behavior is morally acceptable. And then abortion, a LifeWay survey found that about 70% of women who'd had an abortion self-identify as Christians and 43% said they attended church at least once a month or more at the time they aborted their baby. So these numbers, what they reveal is an upstairs, downstairs worldview in the church. And the problem is that many people treat morality as a list of independent rules, where Christianity isn't just a, a collection of independent truths, it's, but it, it's an integrated, holistic truth that covers every area of life. According to Stanley Hauerwas, a moral act, quote, cannot be seen as just an isolated act, but involves fundamental options about the nature and significance of life itself. So theologically, guys, that's why we can't lose sight of the gospel of the kingdom, right? The gospel is, it does include our individual salvation, right? But the gospel of the kingdom covers all of existence, Right, the gospel of the kingdom has something to say about every, every issue, every area of culture, every area of life. The gospel of the kingdom, it, it doesn't, it's not opposed to the gospel of salvation, right? It's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. But we need to think about the kingdom, big picture, right? <clears throat> Related to this sacred secular divide, Nancy Pierce, <clears throat> she recounts how when she, she was a new believer, and she, she was in college at the time, and she was dealing with all these isms that were so seductive to her uh, during her pre-Christian days. And she, she tells a story in the book where she was 
almost overwhelmed by the, the pervasive relativism that she was experiencing in one of her sociology classes. And so what she did is she, she reached out to one of the leaders of her, her campus group, right, one of the campus ministries there, and she says she was desperately looking for some tools that could help her defend the notion that there's a, a genuine objective truth to support the claims of Christianity, and, and the response of her leader, this is what she says, was to steer the conversation away from, from the intellectual territory and, and back to the comfortable spiritual territory. And this is what the leader said to her. He said, Nancy, it sounds like you're having a problem with assurance of salvation. See, this is an example of the, the sacred-secular divide. Piercy, she, she wasn't having an under, a problem understanding the gospel or why she needed a, salva- a, a savior, or how she saved, or the resurrection of Jesus, <clears throat> right? What she needed was a framework that shows Christianity is a unified, holistic view of truth for all of life. <clears throat> In two-story Christianity, on the bottom, we have the secular, which is the body, uh, our intellect, our, our work, professional work, and on the upstairs, right, the, 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 the not-as-valid part of the two-story is spirit, soul, or church work, right? You, you hear this all the time. Well, I want to go into ministry. That means, oh, I need to be a pastor. <clears throat> or I need to go in the mission field. Well, that's a sacred-secular view of work, right? You are out there where you have an influence. It's kingdom theology, Right? It's, there's no sacred-secular divide if you understand it and think about your work that way. Okay, so again, back to the kingdom. <clears throat> so today we, we live in a, in a fractured view of reality that is a cumulative effect of our inheritance from the scientific revolution, right, that, that gave birth to the, to the Enlightenment and gave us the isms of rationalism, materialism, uh, naturalism, and Many of you, if you remember back to, to some of your uh, classes maybe in high school, the Romantic movement was actually a response to the Enlightenment, right? It was a, it was a, it was a drive to keep the, the values and truth and beauty, questions of justice and freedom and meaning, keep those alive. And, and from that tradition, we have <clears throat> the isms of Marxism, uh, existentialism, and postmodernism. So Piercy states that because worldview is so foundational, this divide, the sacred-secular divide, affects every subject area uh, in, in our morality, right? So in moral questions, w- people are asking, what we're, what we're asking is, what is the right way to treat people, right? And our answer depends on what we think human beings are or what it means to be a human being. I believe personally that one of the most powerful and loving things that we can say to someone who has a materialistic, or, or a, a Darwinian worldview is to tell them that they are not an accident, right? You're, you're not just some random cluster of cells and tissue that has no meaning or purpose, right? Because if you really look at the logic of Dar- Darwinism, that, that's what it is. You're random. You have no purpose, Right? And so, again, back to the truth and love, one of the most truthful and powerful and loving things that we can say to someone is like, hey, man, I understand we disagree, but I don't think you're an accident. 
I think that you have incredible value and dignity and meaning, and the reason is you're made in the image of a loving God. Right? Does that make sense? <clears throat> so the key to understanding the hop button issues of the day is that human being, right, and this is where we're coming to, where we're, we're going to unpack these issues in the next few weeks, is that the concept, not just of truth, but of what it means to be a human being has been split into an upper and lower story, right? Secular thought assumes a body person split with the body defined in the, the fact realm of, of empirical science, what, what you can test. That's the lower story. And the person is defined in the values realm as the basis for, for rights or identity in the upper story. So this dualistic uh, worldview has led to a fractured uh, and fragmented view of human beings where the, the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. And one of the most destructive ways that this manifests itself is in the concept of, excuse me, of personhood theory. Now, Pastor Carroll mentioned Sunday how the biblical view of the human being was severed by the Supreme Court in the 1973 Roe versus Wade decision. And, and in that decision, it ruled that even though a baby in the womb is human, it doesn't qualify as a person under the 14th Amendment, right? So again, there's a little chart here for you. Abortion rests on personhood theory, right? And, and, and the, the division is right there in front of you. So personhood theory basically is, it's, it, it basically states that th there's, an, there's a separation, there's an acknowledgement that scientifically and biologically the, the, the baby in the womb is, is a human being but it has not acquired the rights and the status of personhood, right? In other words, it, it hasn't exhibited certain characteristics like uh, awareness, like a drive to survive, uh, avoidance of pain, seeking pleasure. Whatever the case is, the, the, the baby in the womb has not attained that level of, of, of status yet. And that's the logic. That's why, because it's not a person, we can, we can abort that baby, right? And that's the logic. That's what personhood theory essentially is, is this separation between the body and what it means to be a human being. One of the things that you hear me talk a lot about is my love-hate relationship with social media. Now, and I still am at that place, but one of the things that I use Twitter for is uh, I get my news from Twitter, uh, but I also follow people that I want to know what they think about. I want to know what they're saying. But I've also started following people in the last few years that I know I totally disagree with. And I know when I read their tweets, they're going to make me mad. It's true. I get fired up, but I'm trying to be intellectually honest. I'm trying to, to stay, trying to get out of my echo chamber and understand where people are coming from. Right? Because if I really believe they're made in the image of God, I'm going to do that. So I came across a, a Twitter thread just two days ago. Uh, and down in Georgia, there's a big uh, bill. Uh, I'm not sure if it's passed. It's passed, but it hasn't been signed yet. It's called the, the, I think it's the heartbeat detection bill, which basically says that you can't abort a baby once the heartbeat's detected. So it's very, very strongly pro-life, but people are going nuts about it. So uh, I, I saw this tweet, and then I followed the person who's, who wrote the tweet. And I want to give you just, it was a long, 
Twitter thread. There were like 18 different tweets in this one thread, and I'm just going to read you a couple of them. And this is the thinking out there on this particular issue related to abortion. She says, it's not about privacy. And so listen, use your, use your grid, use your logic as a, as to detect some, some things in what, I, in what I'm about to quote. It's not about privacy. It can't be about privacy because privacy is subjective. It's all about equal protection under the law, all caps. You can't enjoy full personhood without complete bodily autonomy. And yes, that includes trans folks, disabled folks, immigrants. Next is, her next tweet is, we're talking about abortion more, which is a good thing. It's a medical procedure like a colonoscopy. And don't come at me with how it's different because a colon polyp isn't a tiny sentient, sentient human like a fetus is. It's not a person with personhood, all caps. And third, if you, if you are arguing against safe and legal access to abortion because you read in a poorly translated book somewhere that God above thinks it's murder... This is not intellectual amateur hour. Come back when you get the training wheels off. Scripture isn't logic or reason. Right? This is what's out there. Are you prepared to engage that? That's what we're trying to do here. Again, so in the weeks ahead, we're going to discuss how the upstairs, downstairs view of human beings affects these critical issues that we're talking about. Uh, the life and death issues, abortion, infanticide, <clears throat> euthanasia. Uh, we're going to talk about sex and, and, and the age of the hookup culture, culture and how to, to really do that, you have to separate your body from the rest of you, right? Uh, w- one of the quotes that Piercy has in the book, talking to a, a younger person, uh, this person says that uh, it's just a, I'm just a meat skeleton, well, what does it matter what my meat skeleton bounces up against, right? So that's, that's sex in the age of the hookup culture. And then we'll talk about uh, sexuality and, and gender idea. But as I close here, Christian worldview is the answer, right? And there's so much evidence that supports a robust, glorious, biblical worldview. I mean, there's tons of resources out there and tons of different, several different ways to look at it. If you If you recall... Uh, J. Warner Wallace, when he was here for the, the Cold Case Christianity Conference, he came at it from an evidentialist perspective. In other words, there's great, great evidence that gives us a high view of confidence beyond a reasonable doubt that Christianity is true, right? If you, his, his big quote is, I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I'm a Christian because it's true, right? Um, there's arguments from, from design, that, that show um, evidence and, and make an argument for um, an, uh, an, an intelligent designer related to the scientific aspect. There's so many great tools that are out there. So, um, so as we close here, let's look at what the Bible says about Christianity using our three-part grid. Okay, and I'm just going to give you a bunch of scriptures here. Creation. Right. Step number one. Right. Every every worldview has to account for our origins. Genesis Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. John one fourteen, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And if there's anything that says that create that God is for creation and he, that he thinks it's a good thing, it's the incarnation of God, the son becoming flesh. OK. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Um, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within whom, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's step one of the grid. Step two is the fall. Genesis two seventeen says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as, one, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And, and this, this next one really correlates to what's happening in our world. James 4.1-3 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Step three of the interpretive grid is redemption. Uh, Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And as I mentioned earlier, our ultimate destination isn't in heaven in a disembodied spiritual state, right? Our ultimate destination is in New Jerusalem. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Creation, fall, redemption. Right? That's the Christian biblical worldview. So in closing, I just want to encourage you that dig deep into this topic. Right? And, 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 And my prayer and my hope is that you get to share what you're learning and what you're discussing with your friends and your family. And my, my hope is that you guys, as you're equipped, there will be a multiplier effect out there as you grow and as you share.